Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Last week, I introduced the topic of our, our new sermon series as motivated. We're going to be taking a closer look through this little mini-series here at the biblical motivations for obedience to the Lord. We spent our whole time together last time, last week, discussing how motives matter. Uh, we talked about how it's, it's not enough to just do the right thing on the outside, but God really sees the heart. God sees your heart, and uh, he cares about not just you doing the right thing on the outside, but he cares about being motivated by the right thing on the inside. We talked about how that's really a problem for us because our motives are all out of whack because of our sin. And, uh, you know, we, we discussed how hopelessly selfish and man-centered our motivations are. And that's why God had to send his son to redeem us and renew us from the inside out. And the good news is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we not only have forgiveness and cleansing from our sin, but, but God cleanses us from our, our lousy heart motivations as well. And we find for the first time that God has given us new motivations from him to fuel and propel us towards Christ-likeness. We're going to be talking about three motivations. There are many biblical motivations that we could discuss, but we're going to be talking about three of these throughout the, the course of this mini-series. We're going to talk about love, then fear, and then finally rewards. And so this morning we're going to be discussing the greatest of the biblical motivations. We're going to talk about love. But before we talk about love, we need to talk about an uncomfortable truth. In Christ, those of us who are in Christ, we no longer have to sin. Do you know that? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, if you want to read that later, that by faith in Jesus, we were actually united to Jesus Christ in his death and in his burial. We were united with him by faith. And so when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, by faith in him, our old selves died with him. Jesus was buried, and then when Jesus rose from the grave, since we are united with him, we receive a, a new life. We are a new creation in him. And we no longer have to sin. Before we came to Christ, Paul describes sin as being like a slave master to us, a taskmaster. We had to do what sin said. We didn't have a choice. We were enslaved to sin. But by faith in Jesus Christ, we are free. We are free from sin. We no longer have to sin. Furthermore, we learn from the Word of God, that even though there will be temptations to sin as a Christian, 
The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that there is no temptation that will seize us as children of God except that which is common to man. And that when those temptations come, God will always provide a way of escape. So what that means is even though um, temptation may be inevitable in this life, sin is not. It's not inevitable that we must sin. Furthermore, the Bible also tells us that we have received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the power that we need to live in victory over our sin. I could go on and on listing these sorts of things. But the question that always remains is that if we are freed from sin and empowered to live in victory, why do we continue to sin? Why do we continue to sin? And that leads us to our uncomfortable truth. The uncomfortable truth is that we sin because we love it. As a child of God who's been freed from the taskmaster of sin, who has been given the way of escape out of sin and temptation and has been filled with the Spirit, empowered to live in victory over sin, the uncomfortable truth is that we continue to sin because our flesh loves it. Brian Chapel writes and says this, As distasteful as the truth may be, the answer to why do we sin is because we love it. We sin because we love it. Consider this, if sin did not attract us, it would have absolutely no power over us. We yield to sin because we find it attractive, beneficial, pleasurable, or advantageous. Our compulsions, not sin's power, put it in the driver's seat. Sin's fuel resides in our affections. Sin gains power over us not by its indomitable force, but by our divided hearts. So he continues, he says, so if our love of a sin is what grants the sin power over us, how do we get rid of that love? How do we get rid of this love for sin that we're talking about here? He says the scriptural answer is plain. With a greater love. With a greater love. It, it's what a 19th century Scottish preacher by the name of Thomas Chalmers once called the expulsive power of a new affection. If I were to put that in, in everyday plain English, I would say that a greater love has the power to overcome a lesser love. So how, if you find that your flesh still loves to sin, how do you overcome that but with a greater love? A new affection. And that's why I want to emphasize to you this morning that as we strive to live as children of God, pleasing our Heavenly Father, that there is no greater motivation than the love of God. The love of God is the greatest motivation of all. It's the greatest. None of them can rival. Of all the many motivations that we read in the Scriptures, the love of God stands the tallest. Jesus said that the love that love is the distinguishing mark of Christians. It's our distinguishing mark. 
He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's John 13, 35. How we love one another as a church, Old Bridge Baptist Church, it's our greatest testimony to a watching world. Jesus said it was our distinguishing mark. Furthermore, without love, you can't even keep any of God's commandments. In Matthew 22, when Jesus was approached by a lawyer, an expert of, the, of God's law, and questioned about what is the greatest commandment, you all know what he said, right? He replied without hesitation, without qualification. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. From Deuteronomy chapter 6 that was read this morning. He said, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two commands, commandments depend all the law and the prophets. First great commandment is to love God with all that you have, with all that you are. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Normally, you don't have to coach someone to love themselves. It just comes naturally. Jesus says, care for others in that way. And he says that all the other commandments hang on these, on love, on the motivation of love. It's like the time I tried to hang up a, uh, a, a bunch of hooks in my home. Like it was just a rack of hooks to hang like coats and stuff on. But I didn't, I didn't screw it into the, into the studs. I screwed it into the drywall. That didn't work very well. Right? I started hanging stuff on that, and before I know it, that thing comes down in the middle of the night, falls to the floor. Right? That's the way love is in God's commands. Everything else hangs on it, and without it, everything falls to the floor. That's how important love is to obeying God, to pleasing God. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that lovelessness renders our efforts meaningless. Lovelessness renders our efforts to obey Him or different acts of righteousness that we might s- pursue in some way or another. It renders them meaningless. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm what? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing, he says. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, even martyrdom, but have not love, I gain nothing. Lovelessness renders our efforts meaningless. On the other hand, there's no greater mo- motivation than the love of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that the love of Christ controls us. Some translations say it constrains us. We pour our lives out for what we love. You see people do it all the time. We, we will pour our lives out for what we truly love. And that's why Jesus said that we must not love spouse or child or parent or treasures or money 
or even our own lives more than him. He said that those who seek to hold on to their lives will lose it, but those who, who uh, let go of their lives for Christ's sake will gain it. Jesus knows that we are controlled by that which we love the most, and only God is worthy of being loved the most. Anything else you put in that category of most loved in my life becomes an idol if it's not God. Because only God is worthy of that kind of love. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we often hear that as, uh, you know, we immediately want to apply it backwards from, I think, the way Jesus intended it. I hear that oftentimes, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I think, well, I better keep my commandments so that Jesus knows, I better keep Jesus' commandments so that he knows that I love him, right? So that he will love me. But I think Jesus intended it the other way around, I'm going to quote Brian Chappell again. He says, Jesus was not simply chiding his disciples to test their love by their loyalty. He was affirming the consequence of our love for him. When he is our first love, walking with him is our first priority. In other words, if you want to obey God, then you must first love God. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. In other words, loving Jesus will motivate you to obey what he says. This leads me to my next point here. I want you to see that love is first a noun and then a verb. You might say, oh great, grammar. I hated grammar in school. Well, hang with me and I'm hoping you'll understand this here. Have you ever heard that the popular saying that, that love is a verb? In fact, I think uh, John Mayer wrote a song recently called Love is a Verb. What do they mean by that? that? Love is a verb. Have you heard that before? I'm getting a lot of blank stares. Love is a verb. What, what do they mean by that? It means don't just tell me that you love me, show me. Right? Anybody can say, oh, I love you, I love you. Um, you know, it's kind of like on Facebook. I have... 500 friends on Facebook, but how many of them even know when my birthday is, right? Something like that, right? Don't just tell me you're my friend. Don't just tell me that you love me. Show me. Love is a verb. And I think that that saying is actually quite right in many ways. After all, the Bible says in 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's a scriptural idea. Right? We don't want to just say to someone, oh, have a good night, be warm and well-fed. Meanwhile, they go out into the cold with no coat on and no food in their, their cupboards. Right? We, the way we show them love is we, we clothe them and we feed them. Right? That's love. But in reality, to minimize love down to mere action is an error in the other direction. It's an oversimplification. Love isn't merely a verb. Listen to what one writer by the name of John Bloom had to say about this. He said, if we reduce love to mere action, we will miss love at its source. Making love only a verb will likely make us Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees thought. You know, they, they were all action but no love on the inside. 
The Pharisees probably would have nodded at love as a verb. John Bloom goes on, he says, because just like, you, just like you can talk loving without really loving, you can act loving without really loving. He goes on to say, to understand love correctly, we must see that love originates as a noun that necessarily produces verbs. In other words, let me just put that in my own words, love isn't just an action, it's also a thing. Or more specifically, Love is a person. Love is both a person and an action. First, you must know what love is in order for you to go out the door and do something loving. It's the error that so many people make. They don't know love, but they want to be all about love. But how can you be all about love if you don't know love? And so let's talk about this. What is love? God is love. God is love. You know, every year, one of the top ten questions that people Google, you know there's lists of, of you can find out what people are Googling. And there's, a, there's top lists of what people are out there Googling on a yearly basis. Every year in the top ten is this question. What is love? Isn't that, isn't that remarkable? People are out there wondering what is love and they turn to Google to find out. By the way, it ranked fourth on the list right behind when are the NBA playoffs, what's my IP address, and where's my refund? There's a lot of confusion out there about what exactly love is and I think the reason for that is twofold. One, we use the word love to refer to a lot of different things, don't we? Everything from a strong affinity to our favorite pet, to a friendship, to romance, or charity. It's one word, but it's used in such a wide spectrum of ways. So there's confusion. What is love, anyway? And secondly, I can't prove this, but I, I surmise that people are out there asking what love is because we are hurt by those who are supposed to love us. So often I think love falls short of what's advertised. I think people suspect that something is amiss and they're searching for, for what's real. What is real love anyway? Let me, let me ask the internet. Well, in the face of, of those kinds of questions, that kind of confusion and hurt, let me encourage you to not turn to Google, but to turn to God's Word. Right? God tells us what love is. And, and in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, it says, tells us where love comes from, and it tells us what love is. It says that love comes from God. God is the source of love. Love comes from God. But more than that, it says that God is love. Not just that God is loving, not just that he is the source of love, but that he is love itself. So how can you know what love is if you don't know God? God is love. To know the definition of love is to know not a sentence defining it. To know love, true love, you must know God himself. 
I often remember with fondness back to this, that period in my life when I first began experiencing the love of God, not just singing about it, not just hearing about it from somebody else, but experiencing the love of God for myself. Do you remember that period of time in your life when you first came to know Christ? And before then, you didn't know what love was. And then one day you come to, come to realize and understand the grace of God as explained to you in the gospel. And you get introduced to what real love is. I remember, I, I just couldn't wait to, to spend some undistracted time each day in the presence of such a pure love. And I, I came from a good family, a good Christian family, a good Christian family, parents who loved me. I had lots of friends, friends who loved me. I was, I was voted friendliest in my high school. It was my superlative. But guess what? I found I was thirsty for real love. Do you remember that? Experiencing God's love for the first time. One of my favorite descriptions of the love of God in all of Scripture comes from Romans chapter 8. I think I have this up on the screen for you. No, I don't. Romans chapter 8, in verse 31. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? What a wonderful way to describe God's love. God is not against you. He is for you. He goes on, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's already given you the best. How will he not also along with him give you all things? And if you skip down through the passage, it Verse um, 35, it asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Nothing can separate you from this love. How do we measure God's love? John Piper, in speaking on this topic of what is love, said that the magnitude of God's love is measured in the Bible by four criteria. I don't know if you know John Piper, but he, he tends to say things in really long sentences. And so I, I was really touched by what he said here, but I took his words and I sort of made them my own and I accommodated them here to my message. What is the magnitude of God's love? first way that you can really measure God's love or, or any act of love, I think, is to measure the, the worthiness of the one loved. The worthiness of the one loved. In short, you and I are not worthy of God's love. Right? So, how much love does it take to, to love someone who is lovable? Someone who's beautiful, talented, fun to be around, friendly, all those sorts of things. It, it takes sort of a normal amount of love, right? If you were measuring love. It, yeah, you're loving, but you're loving me because I'm lovable, right? That kind of a thing. 
God's word tells us that he loved us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies. He sent Christ to die for us. So if you want to measure the love of God, the magnitude of that love, in part, you need to look at the fact, how much love does it take to love your enemies? It takes the most amount of love to love someone who hates you and who is rebellious towards you. A second way to measure the magnitude of God's love is to look at the cost of loving that person. What was the cost of God loving us? John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Right? That was the cost. God paid the highest personal price to love us. Jesus said in John 15.13 that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And not only did Jesus say that, he made love a verb, and not much longer after he said that, he laid his life down for us. The cost of God's love toward us was the highest of possible prices, the life of his only begotten and beloved son, nailed and cursed by God to a Roman cross. He paid the highest price. Thirdly, the impact. You can measure the magnitude of God's love by the impact on the one loved. Another way to measure love is its impact. Did the love, uh, uh, the act of love result in good for the one loved? If so, how much good did it do? Again, I think we can turn to the familiar John 3.16. John 3.16 describes the impact of God's love upon believers that we shall not perish, those who believe in him shall not perish, but instead have everlasting life. What an impact God's love had upon us. And then fourthly and finally, the desire for the good of the one loved. God's motive in all of, of what he did for us was for his glory and for our good. No one made him do it. No one uh, twisted his arm. He didn't need to do it because of some lack in himself. But like the father scanning the horizon for the prodigal son to return home, God did it for his glory and for our good and welcomed us home with open arms and even ran to us. Romans 8.28 tells us this, that for those that love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. What is the measure of God's love? How do you measure its magnitude? It's of the greatest magnitude possible. He loved you even though you didn't deserve it, without condition. He loved you at the highest of possible personal costs. He loved you for the greatest of possible goods. And he loved you out of the purest of desires because he is love. And to know him is to know what love is. God's love is so great that Paul prayed in the book of Ephesians. He, prayed, he told the Ephesians that he prayed regularly for them that they would be rooted and grounded in God's love, that, God, that Christ's love would be sort of like the soil is for a tree, its strength and its stability. 
He prayed that they would know the love of Christ, even though it's measureless. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love? Paul says it surpasses knowledge. There is no greater motivation to obeying God than to know the love of God. And love must flow down to us from heaven. God loved His Son and sent His Son for us. And then Jesus came and shared that love with us. In John 15, 9, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Love flows down to us from above and moves us to do what we could never do on our own or ever even wanted to do before we knew Him. I'll leave you with a little story from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7. The story of a day when Jesus was invited by a Pharisee to eat with him uh, in his house. And I'll just read the story to you straight from Scripture. It needs very little explanation, but I think it'll, it'll end on the note that I want to end on here this morning. It says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, wiping, she began, or I'm sorry, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. I don't care who you are or what you've done. You can know the love of God this morning. And in fact, Jesus says that is those who realize that they have been forgiven much, who love much. Let me pray for you.